Trigger warning. This podcast contains a deep discussion about body dysmorphic disorder and suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Event, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. Each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode, Venters, is a man who has been on a roller coaster journey with his mental health, but it's testament to how anyone with the right support and the right amount of bravery, courage, determination can overcome the toughest of mental health challenges. His name is Danny Bowman. Danny is a mental health advocate and campaigner, the campaign head for mental health policy at Think Tank Parliament Street, and the vice chair of male eating disorder charity Male Voice ED. He also finds time to be a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts, Manufacturing and Commerce. Self-confidence, anxiety, the perils of social media and a body disorder that Danny lives with known as Body Dysmorphic Disorder or BDD are on the menu for today's show. This is how our check-in went. Danny, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. I can't believe it's taken us this long to get this pod together because we followed each other on Twitter for quite a while. And also, so the listeners know, we did try to do this record a couple of weeks ago at time of recording, but basically we had some technical difficulties. So thank you so much for coming back and agreeing to do this for a second time. I understand you are doing a master's at the moment. So how is that going and how are you generally coping in this crazy period we are living through? I'm coping okay, yeah. It's an interesting time and definitely doing a, a master's as well. It's, it's very interesting, but I'm slowly but surely getting through it. Slowly but surely, step by step, module by module, I think would probably be how I'd put it. Your journey is unbelievably inspiring, mate, and there's lots to unpack. So shall we just get on with the show? I want to dive straight into this pod, Danny, and start off by talking about your journey. So first off, why don't you tell me about your early life growing up in Newcastle? And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Danny we meet here? Let's start with primary school first, as we'll come on to secondary school in just a moment. Yeah, I was a pretty normal kid growing up in the northeast of England. I loved football, which it seems that you you can't not love football if you grow up in Newcastle. But yeah, I mean, I was a pretty normal kid, had friends, everything was pretty normal, to be perfectly honest. But as time went on, there were certain intricacies that I started to notice. Certain things that didn't seem right, certain obsessional behaviours, things like that, counting five times and things like that. So small things started to appear. But as a young person, I didn't really notice any of this. I didn't think it was important. And I think my parents probably saw it as just, you know, small boy intricacies. But obviously, as time went on, it became more serious. You told me off air, mate, that you were a rugby lad as well and a bit, inverted commas, chunkier than your classmates. And you stated that you, in your words, weren't the ideal body image. Now, before we dive into your secondary school journey, 
What did you see as the ideal body image back then? Was it the stereotypical ripped and bulky man that's chucked at men in popular culture or perhaps something else you created in your mind? You know, I grew up with two older sisters, so magazines around the house were readily available kind of fashion magazines. So I think kind of my idea of the perfect man was more kind of male model, kind of picture, perfected skin, perfectly toned body. And as you said at the time, I just didn't replicate that at all. I was a, you know, as a chunky rugby lad, for anyone who knows rugby, I was, I was a prop type lad, front rower, and uh, I just didn't replicate at all what I should look like. And that had a really detrimental impact on me. And I think I started to connect the idea of being successful and, you know, perfectionism, you know, together. And that's kind of where things started to go slightly wrong. But that was the ideal image for me. Every child, Danny, finds the jump from primary to secondary school a hugely anxiety-ridden transition. It's like your world is opening up for the first time. For you, you really did struggle with it around the age of 13 and 14, and that's where your mental health struggles, I think, would be fair to say, began. Tell me why that was and how it became worse of the school environment you were in and the social media comparison culture you became deeply affected by. Absolutely. So I moved to an, an inner-city Newcastle school, it was very different type school. So I I sort of grown up in a very uh, local countryside school and I moved to this sort of inner city school and I felt that everyone was just so much better than me. Everyone looked better than me. Everyone was more intelligent than I was. Everyone was better at sport than I was. And all of these things compounded together and I just felt like I needed to perfect myself in some way. And at that particular juncture, I just felt like I needed to perfect my image. I felt if I perfected my image, it would mean I get a girlfriend. And if I got a girlfriend, it means I would be popular. And if I I was popular, it means that, you know, I'd have a lot of friends. So all of these things kind of came together. So I started to try and perfect my appearance. And the social media element to it was that I started to post images of myself on social media. Um, And at that particular juncture, it was to get validation from individuals, to get validation from my friends. But unfortunately, I didn't get that validation. I got the opposite. I started to get comments focusing on my hair, my weight, my skin, kind of pulling me apart. And I think that's what set me on a particular trajectory towards ruin, if you like. And that was a real trigger for me because that confirmed that my worries were real and that I wasn't perfect and I needed to perfect my appearance to enable me to fit in. As you were going along that journey, Danny, you developed what is called body dysmorphic disorder. For the listeners who don't know what that is, tell them what BDD is and then how it differs from other eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia and maybe some stats and facts around it that we can use to educate the listeners. Absolutely. It's a disorder where you have a pre, you know, focus on one or more part of your body and it has a real severe effect on you. So you focus in on this specific part of your body. So for me, it was my skin and it was my weight and I focused in and analyzed on it and it can cause extreme distress, to be honest. And I think extreme is not a a weak word in this case. It's really, really distressful to suffer from. And it doesn't just affect you in a small way. It can take over your entire life. This flaw becomes your main focus in life and you can spend hours and hours each day stressing over this flaw. It can prevent you from going out to see friends and family. So it can take over your entire life. And in, in relation to how many people it affects, I saw a recent figure that said one in 50. However, I've seen a range of different figures. I think one of the issues with BDD 
is because there isn't that awareness, a lot of people don't come forward with it and a lot of people aren't necessarily diagnosed with it. I think there's probably a lot more people out there who are experiencing BDD, but just haven't, unfortunately, got the help they needed or come forward with it. And one final point about BDD that's really important is it affects men and women equally. So unlike anorexia and bulimia, it affects men and women equally, which I think is really, really interesting. And obviously for me, it was, you know, to hear that, it made me feel so much better. And and as my story progressed, that helped me get the support I needed. You told me that initially you saw your physical appearance as a form of self-development to improve, get better and perhaps fit in essentially. Now, the first two aren't toxic behaviours in and of themselves and you know physical exercise is a great way to improve your mental health and manage it but was there a point when that pendulum began to swing and then it became toxic could you pinpoint a moment or was it just a gradual thing that's a really good question i think it became more of a gradual thing however if i was to pinpoint one moment where the trajectory changed for me from a normal fixation on my exercise and the way i looked i'd probably say social media was the key catalyst for that. As soon as people started to confirm to me that I looked a certain way or that I wasn't perfect, I started then to spend extra amount of time, abnormal amount of time, perfecting my appearance. And that came in the form of reducing the amount of times I went out, seeing friends, seeing family, the ability to really concentrate on my education. You know, I used to sit in class and I was so panicky about the way I looked that I had to leave and go and look at myself in the toilets. So my education suffered hugely in in that sense. Um, So I think as the normal activity started to fall sideways and I started to spend longer in the mirror, you know, up to two, three hours a day in the mirror and then start to take photos of myself continuously and also obviously most harmfully kind of purging my food, things started to really take a turn for the worse. And as we'll get on to, that had a major impact on my entire life, including my education. When we spoke off air, mate, you used what would appear on the surface to people quite hyperbolic language to describe how obsessive your morning routine was. You said, I would spend five hours looking in the mirror, I'd brush my teeth a thousand times, comb my hair a million times. How far from the truth was this in reality? I mean, that was my routine. I literally spent... And at one point it became 10 hours a day. So, you know, at the most severe period of my life, I was literally getting up at 6 a.m. every morning and spending throughout the day 10 hours staring in the mirror, fixating on my appearance, taking 200 photos of myself a day. Obviously it varied, but 200 photos was kind of the height of kind of zooming in on my appearance, scrutinizing it. I remember I used to take mirrors outside and stare at my appearance at every angle because I was so worried about the way I might look at different angles. And, you know, I reduced my food intake and I was purging my food. I was putting spot cream on to try and prevent spots from appearing. I was using the really harsh spot cream, which obviously made my skin more red, which made me worry even more. But that was my reality. And I, I think when sometimes when I say it to people, they're shocked in disbelief that someone can go through that but that was my reality every single day from 6 a.m to about 11 p.m 12 a.m at night of just fixated on my appearance and that was it by the time you were 15 danny like you said your bdd became so bad and was affecting your academic attainment and behavior in class that you made the decision to drop out of education altogether which 
must have been such a difficult decision and period of your life and your mental health. However, you told me looking back, it was actually the worst decision you could have made. Why was that? Yeah, it, it was the worst decision I could have made. I, I think at the time, I was so fixated on the way I looked and I felt as you know we talked about earlier I connected that to success so education kind of came secondary but it was my only normality you know it was the only thing that was really keeping the fabric together going to school every day and actually spending that time in the classroom and with other peers and socializing and things like that so that was my only normality and when you took that away all that was left was my zooming in on my appearance every day and as I said I would get up at 6am and spend all day just fixated on my appearance and the reason that was the worst thing I could have done was because that actually made my mental health deteriorate further made my BDD become much worse and at that point I became housebound for around six months so not seeing anyone so it wasn't just the BDD but it was also the loneliness and everything mixed in together that really amplified what I was experiencing. Before we come on to that period of six months when you were out of school, Danny, I just want to briefly touch on social media because I know it's something that affected you deeply. And I've seen and heard from ED advocates who tell of this really horrible trend amongst teenagers when it comes to eating disorders on social media and Instagram, all these accounts sort of trying to praise each other for purging more and all this sort of stuff. I need to really look up and educate myself more on. What do you think is the solution to these fears you are having or these anxieties you're having? What can social media companies do to protect or safeguard teenagers from these horrific behaviours or trends, basically? Yeah, I mean, I, I think social media, unfortunately, it seems to have taken a long time for them to find their, you know, their moral responsibility to, to protect their users. And I think in the case of, you bring up a really interesting case in the sense of images that come up. And I think on the milder side, you've got images of influencers who it's clearly edited to the roof. And I think what social media can do in that case is label them images and say this image has been edited or this image has been edited to a certain extent or put responsibility on them influencers as part of their guidelines to make sure that they label them as being edited. On the more extreme side of where you've got kind of eating disorder, kind of pro-anorexia sites, we take them down. It's as simple as that. And, uh, you know, as I know it's very, very hard to police such a, a vast space, but the responsibility of Facebook is to take down all of them particular sites because they are extremely detrimental and they can lead to people's conditions being amplified um, or someone developing an eating disorder. So I think you've got two things there that social media companies can do and they have the power to do both if they want to. And I think that would be a really good start. Going back to your journey now, those six months were a really difficult period for you, Danny, and your mental health. I'm right in saying that you began to have an induced form of agoraphobia set in. Such was your fear of judgment by others if you left the house. If you could, just tell me about this period of your life and then how it made your mental health state deteriorate further. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's hard to reflect on it. You know, looking back, it just seems surreal that I spent six months in my parents' house without leaving, spending 10 hours a day looking in the mirror, taking those photos, purging my food. That's all I did for six months. And, you know, I think reflecting on it, it just seems surreal. But the loneliness I felt, you know, I remember going on, ironically going on social media and, and looking at everyone else and they just seemed to be living their lives. I kind of lived through them. They seemed to be living their lives. Everything was normal. I just remember thinking to myself, I wish I was like them. 
I wish I could just leave the house. I wish I could just, you know, stop this behavior, but I couldn't. It had taken a hold of me. And the idea of leaving the house was terrifying to me because I thought people would literally be scared of my appearance. That if I went out, people would stare at me or point at me or children would be scared of me because my image was so disformed. I mean, that's how severe BDD can get. You know, we're talking about what BDD is. This is the reality sometimes of BDD, that it can become so severe to the point that you don't even feel like you can leave the house. And throughout that six months, my condition just got worse and worse and worse to the point that six months in and I think it's very important we talk about these things I'm not embarrassed to say this but six months in I remember just laying on my bed and just I couldn't do it anymore I couldn't seek perfection continuously every single day I couldn't go through all this trauma and unfortunately I took an overdose because it was just too difficult I wasn't living a life but yet again that was another mistake I made because it was the worst thing I could possibly do but luckily I was found I got rushed to the hospital. After you tried to take your own life Danny your parents took you to the Maudsley Hospital in London which is a specialist centre for BDD and body image issues. This was where your road to recovery really began although I gather you got extremely lucky in receiving treatment at all. Can you tell me about your experiences here and what you learned along the way to tackle your BDD head-on? Was this a turning point for you? It was a turning point. Just to go back to the hospital, I remember being there and just thinking, I've been given a second chance, if you like. You know, I've been given a, an opportunity to recover and I'm going to take this really seriously and I'm going to get better. And as you said, I was very lucky to go to the Maudsley Hospital. I mean, at the time they were doing actually a research programme on BDD, you know, strike of luck there, the first luck I'd had in six months. But yeah, I got on a research program and I traveled down to London every week from Newcastle to get the support I needed, which I'm sure didn't hurt my parents' bank account a little bit. But, you know, I got the support I needed and that was in the form of 12 sessions where we looked at why this happened. We looked at the specific fears I had around my appearance. But we also did a thing called exposure tasks. I was put into situations where I'd feel anxious and I would stay in them situations to reduce the anxiety. So one of the hilarious ones was I'd, I'd mess up my hair and you know look really scruffy and then walk down a busy London high street. I think it was Lewisham High Street. And you know you can imagine the horror of someone with BDD doing that. But these small exercises started to become bigger and bigger and bigger. And my confidence started to become more and more and more. And after them 12 sessions, I started to become confident that I could potentially get some of my life back and could potentially go on to, to live a somewhat fulfilling life, which I never believed right at the start. Before we move on to your recovery journey, Danny, I just want to go back to that moment where you tried to take your own life. If you could say, what got you through that period, do you think? I think I'm very lucky. I'd like to say, you know, sheer courage and optimism and belief and all these things but you know it was actually the people around me you know I've got brilliant parents who ironically they're both mental health professionals ironically but they stood by me through all of this they supported me they helped me my two sisters were there for me and I think they really pulled together for me and as a family unit we kind of got through it together but you know I can't imagine the strain it put on all of my family my mental health struggles but that unit that family unit got through it together and I think that enabled me to get through the the hardest part 
of my journey and really start kind of a trajectory towards getting things back to normal. And when it comes to your school life, if you could go back and talk to a teacher or talk to an educator and tell them what they could have done to support you or if there are any teachers listening who might have someone like you in their school, what would you say would be the best solutions to help someone like you back then and now? I think it's about teachers. I mean, teachers have got a a hard task at the moment, so I don't want to pile stuff onto them. But I think it's about, you know, having an awareness, being able to spot the signs in specific pupils and identify if they are experiencing difficulties and listening. I think is the key. If a pupil is suffering, if a pupil comes to you, listen to what they have to say and then try your best to facilitate some level of support. But I think we need a system response to this. I think schools are are an amazing environment where we could intervene on, on mental health problems. And when I was younger, that support just wasn't there. That awareness just wasn't there. But I think as time goes on, you know, we're reducing the stigma attached to mental health. We're, you know, enabling people to talk about it more openly. But I think if we can use schools as a place where, you know, people can start to get the support they need and we can enable early intervention, I think that would be a really good thing. But I think just listening and doing your best. I think teachers have got to remember they're not mental health professionals and they have, you know, the greatest teachers, but they're not mental health professionals and we don't expect them to be. But just listening and recognising the signs in students is really useful. Recovery, as we know, Danny, is not a straight line, despite what our minds can tell us and sometimes make us believe. How do you navigate those ups and downs along the way for you? And why is it important we normalise making mistakes in our recovery or just having a bad period for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. You know, things are definitely not linear. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that. I mean, I've had that many ups and downs. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, more ups and downs than scribbles on a page. It's been really difficult, but I think you've got to recognize and be be kind to yourself. Every down, there's always a, an up to follow and you've got to believe that up's coming and recognize, always try to look back at how far you've come. So what I always try to do is if I had a down week where I start to focus on my appearance more, I'd look back and see what had already been achieved and how far I'd come. And that would give me the strength to kind of keep going again. But I think it's continuously believing that you know, something better is coming and being kind to yourself and recognizing how far you've already come because every single person I've spoken to who suffered from mental illness has not had a linear line. Nobody's had a linear line and you've just got to keep going, keep persevering because I promise, you know, I'm a good example. If I can do it, you know, if I can get to a much better place than anyone can and I think that would be the message I'd send. The final part of your journey so far, Danny, has been getting back into education after you dropped out. And I know this is a massive source of pride for you. You enrolled at Newcastle College when you were 20 years old. Was that daunting entering adult education when you may have been sitting next to some 16, 17 year old in class? Tell me about your journey here. It was interesting. You know, I I was terrified about education. I was embarrassed as well. I didn't have any qualifications. I was really worried. And I remember driving there on the first day and and Newcastle College campus is really lovely actually, but we drove past it. And I was like, what's happening? Why why are we driving past the college? And he said, no, 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 the adult education thing is just down the road. And we (laughs) we went down in Biker in Newcastle down the road and we arrived at this kind of shopping center thing. And I was like, what's going on? And I went in and they'd actually renovated part of the shopping centre into an adult education kind of unit, which is quite something. But then going into that classroom and sitting down and being around a range of people, actually, people from 
all different types of backgrounds who'd actually come back to education to try and give a second shot at it. And it was daunting at first, but the difference was from day one, there was mental health support at the um, environment, within the environment, and the teachers were so motivating and so supportive of kind of getting me through what I needed to get through. And I was very lucky to get through that period and get my GCSEs and then went on to do my A-levels or A-levels equivalents and then was lucky enough to go to the University of York. And it just shows the difference that it can make when there's actually support available in the environment. Like you said, you got into the prestigious University of York after getting your GCSEs and a diploma. How big a moment was that for you? Did you think you'd ever get to that point? I never thought I'd get my GCSEs back. So I think the idea of getting into any university would have been a shock in itself. Uh, But to get into York was unbelievable. I definitely had a a feeling of imposter syndrome for about the first year of being there. And it was it was overwhelming. You know, the idea of being able to go to university uh, with everything that had come before was incredible. And I'm really grateful, obviously, to the university for giving me that opportunity. And that just boosted my confidence more. And as I went through university, things got really good. And I'm glad to say I I got my degree last year and and loved it so much that I decided to go on to put myself through a master's degree during a pandemic. Um, But yeah, no, and it was amazing. And I think my mental health started to improve greatly through that period because of the confidence I started to build, you know, and I'm, I'm very lucky to be where I am now. One thing I wanted to touch on here, Danny, is that there's a trend or a thing with mental health and people have gone through suicidality where, for example, in my case, I never thought I'd make it past 16. So when I did and I got to a period of recovery, I was suddenly like, crap, what do I do now? It's almost like you're making up for lost time in life. Did you ever feel that? Absolutely. I mean, I think the feeling of what do I do now definitely, definitely came over me. You know, I've been given this new opportunity. What do I do? What do I do with it? You know? But I think education kind of filled that void for a period of kind of being able to focus on one thing and be able to kind of use that as a booster going through. And obviously alongside that, I did a lot of campaigning as well. And I think that joined together kept my focus and gave me a reason to stay well, if that makes sense, and gave me a reason to kind of take my sertraline and and, and keep going, you know. But I was very lucky to have both of them opportunities at that time and to do that kind of kept me kept me on the straight and narrow given all you've been through Danny if you could go back and speak to that 15 year old Danny or 10 year old Danny who was in such a dark place with his mental health and how he viewed himself what would you say to him knowing what you do now I think I'd say relax just take it day by day don't be too aware of the influence around you especially negative influences like social media, the pressures of needing to look a certain way or be a certain way, you know, be happy in your own skin. And, you know, that's very easy to say, I guess, for, you know, everyone tells teenagers to be happy in their skin and, and to relax. But it's really, really important because once you get through that period, things do get better. I think it's a really difficult age, but don't end up like me where I put so much pressure on myself and pretty much indulged in that pressure. That would be my advice, to not indulge in the pressures of being a teenager and just enjoy day by day. (laughs) 
all we've discussed in that last topic, mate, brings us nicely onto this one, which has been your work as a mental health campaigner. I guess advocate is another word you could use, although I kind of feel slightly uncomfortable with that term as <laughs> with myself. I understand your story went viral in a positive way, which isn't always the case with viral content. Tell me how this story began. Yeah, it began through the charity Fixers, actually. So when I started to recover, I contacted a wonderful charity called Fixers UK, who gave young people a voice on a specific issue they cared about. And they kind of give you the tools to do it. So you record a video, you can have a campaign launch, all of these different things that you can do. And I started engaging in that, thinking that it would just stop at the local level. But then I, I remember getting a call saying that Daybreak want you on. Um, I think it was the, the Sunday Mirror as well were going to cover it. And I thought, oh, wow, this is this is incredible, thinking that it would stop there. But then suddenly the world media kind of caught hold of it. It became like a quite a viral story. And it, it, it went pretty global. And it, it kind of catalyzed itself around the idea of the selfie addict thing, which, you know, different people had different opinions on that. I think my personal opinion was if that's the way I'm going to be able to get the message out there around my BDD, I think it's really, really important to go with that. And I started talking to different media platforms around the world. I got to go to New York, actually, it was quite cool to do an interview. And I started trying to get that message out that actually, you know, BDD is real and, and, and people need to start talking about it. But most importantly as well, that men can suffer from these illnesses. And it was an amazing experience and really gave me a platform to kind of start talking about BDD and, and, and body image difficulties. And from that point, I was lucky enough to get further opportunities that I know are going to go on to you. As you began to do more and more media, mate, whether that be TV or written, how did you adjust to being chucked in at the deep end like that? Was it ever something that you struggled with or had imposter syndrome over? Because it's certainly not easy doing all of that that young. It was weird. It was, it was very, very strange. I think you, you never really know how to deal with it. For starters, I didn't make the mistake of looking at comments again on the stories. I refused to look at comments, which was probably one of the most positive things I could have done. But as time went on, I kind of saw it more of a, as a kind of a mission to talk about mental health and stay with what I wanted to achieve. You know, it wasn't necessarily about the media or anything like that. It was about getting that message out there. And I think when you kind of put it in that way, you kind of forget about the kind of or get too over anxious or excited about the media side of things. You just kind of do what you do because you want to raise awareness or you want to improve services or you want to do that. So that's kind of how I normalized it. I think moving forward but it was the weirdest experience and if you can imagine someone with BDD sitting in front of a camera and getting filmed wow biggest exposure task ever would be the way I'd put it so in some ways it was beneficial I guess putting me in a pretty uh, anxiety provoking situation Definitely. And I'm sure all your counsellors and therapists were looking on with glee and admiration when you did all those media pieces, mate. When you did send over some of the media you'd done, Danny, before this pod, like you said, the headlines which were used were selfie-obsessed teenager or selfie-addict. Now, that's not an inaccurate statement, I guess, in itself. But on some level, did it hurt you or affect you negatively in some way to be reduced to that? I think in some senses... Originally it did. I felt a bit embarrassed. I felt like, you know, God, I've been put as the bizarre story section. However, I kind of tried to reformulate it in my mind and actually see it as an opportunity and see it as an opportunity to start talking about these things. To be honest, it kind of outlined to me 
the key issue, that these issues are spoken about in such crude terms, and to a certain extent such clickbait terms, that we actually need to raise awareness of this, and we need to talk about these things, and we need to educate people on these things. So it kind of confirmed to me that actually the work I was doing mattered. I don't blame the media for going with that. You know, any person working in the media or journalist would look at that and say, okay, I'm going to focus on that because that's going to get the most likes or the most focus. But it gave me an opportunity to start talking about these issues and start hopefully helping people. And I think that was how I saw it. Like you said, your campaigning work started at Fixers UK, which unfortunately is no longer operational, I found out during doing research for this pod. But in 2016, you really began to take on even more important stuff through your role at Parliament Street, where you were head of their mental health policy agenda. How did that come about? And what was some of the work you led on to help fight the good fight? I was very lucky. A guy called Patrick Sullivan contacted me. He's a really, really lovely guy. And he'd seen some of the work I'd done. He he asked me if I wanted to get involved with Parliament Street. And at first I was a bit anxious because I was like, you know, politics is quite a rough, rough game. Am I really up for this? I don't think this would be in the, uh, the care plan. (laughs) you know but I thought it was important to try and kind of take it to the next level and Patrick was so supportive of me and the whole team was and I started to develop kind of a campaign from the bottom so I started to do a range of different activities I started doing some podcasts so we managed to get Alistair Campbell on board and some other political names to talk about mental health and then we also organised a couple of events in Parliament with MPs to kind of get people talking about these specific issues. And then from that, I wrote numerous report papers on, on the specific findings that we'd done. And we started to do also lots of different pieces of research on mental health from every angle you can imagine. So police incidents with mental health, university, mental health, so all specific areas. And it kind of went up from there. You know, I'm really proud of Parliament Street and what we aimed to achieve because at the time it was a really exciting time for mental health generally because Theresa May stood on the steps of Downing Street and she said you know mental health was one of the evils that we needed to address and we really capitalized on that and used it as an opportunity to to really talk about this really important issue and hopefully improve care and services and support for individuals across the country and play our small part in that. Was there one piece of work that meant the most to you from a mental health perspective? I always enjoy working with people who've had lived experience. So I think working with people as part of that campaign and encouraging them to write blogs if they wanted to, or giving them the opportunity to speak on a panel, which we did in Parliament, was really important to me because I've been there too, where you don't know where to turn, you don't know what opportunities to go with, and you want to talk about these things. So I think working with people who've had them lived experiences and not necessarily people who are in the media, who've had big names, but actually individuals who've got a story to tell and really want to raise awareness of it. So I think working with people with that lived experience was really important to me. And that was probably the most beneficial alongside everything else. When you were 15 and in that state of suicidality, mate, did you ever think you'd get to a place where you'd be talking to, for example, the lovely Sarah Jane Me on Sky News or Radio 5 Live podcasts? No, no, I, I didn't. Definitely not. And yeah, Sarah Jane Me is absolutely lovely. She is really, really lovely. And yeah, no, I, ne- I never believed I'd, I'd be doing that. As you said, you kind of have that period after reaching crisis point where you're like, what am I going to do now? And going to Newcastle College was kind of on the agenda going to university wasn't. You know, the idea of being on Sky News or anything like that was just unbelievable. So being able to have that opportunity to talk about these issues and to 
to meet the lovely Sarah Jo and me and to talk on a range of different platforms across the country and the world was an amazing opportunity and I'm, I'm really grateful for that and hopefully most importantly I've, I've made my 0.01% contribution and continue to do so to this really important issue of mental health and I'm going to continue doing so. As a final part of this topic, mate, let's talk about male voice ED because it is your baby to some degree at least and you are vice chair of it. How did that come about and do you see it as the vehicle for you to bring about the most change for the mental health system or do you have greater or loftier ambitions as well? Well, male voice is fantastic. I'm really lucky to work with two fantastic individuals, Debbie Rauch, which is actually the new uh, chief executive of male voice and Ian McKay. And we kind of took this up together and kind of relaunched it as male voice in the House of Lords, weirdly, which was the weirdest thing to do. And it was amazing. It was really, really exciting. And I think one of the things that I hope we can be at male voice is we can start to give, you know, males that platform to talk about these issues and to talk about their body image problems, as well as offering online support groups across the country. So it's a really exciting project that's growing. And I think you know, as time goes on, specifically after the pandemic, I think we really want to be able to be there for males who are experiencing these difficulties. And we really want to expand to support every male we possibly can. And like I said, I've got a great team in Debbie Rauch, who's exceptional, and, and Ian McKay in making sure we can do that. But I think it's a really exciting possibility at the moment. We're quite small at the moment, but I think as time goes on, we're hoping to expand and hoping to achieve our mission of giving males a voice who are experiencing eating disorders but also offering them the support and care that they so dearly need i've just got one final question mate i've just thought of as you were speaking which is about your masters can you tell me a little bit about that and does it include any mental health work or mental health research that you plan to either use whilst you're doing the degree or after it my master's is in, well, now I'm doing comparative social policy. I did social policy at undergrad and not to give too much away about my uh, my dissertation title, but I'm hoping to, for my undergraduate degree, I focused on the World Health Organization's European Mental Health Action Plan and kind of operationalised that. And I'm hoping to do the global plan for my dissertation and my master's. So I do have the opportunity to kind of focus on mental health to a certain extent and entwine it into the theories of social policy. But I, I think mental health generally as a, as a policy area is, is up and coming. I think more people are talking about it and more people are recognising how much it intertwines with other areas of policy. You know, how important it is for individual outcomes, social outcomes, but also economic outcomes. So I think it's, a, it's becoming a really exciting area. And if, if I can get mental health in there, my, my lecturers will probably tell you, I, I will try to. But yeah, no, it, it, it's really great. It's really great. We have come to the final topic of conversation, Danny, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So it's a bit of quick fire, it's a bit of deeper stuff. But firstly, circumstances including or excluding, I guess, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? My mental health is probably about a six out of ten. I'd say at the moment, a bit affected by the pandemic, I think, a bit affected by living on my own, but I'm persevering through. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day -day life? So I live with two mental health conditions, OCD and BDD, although BDD is, is much better now and OCD is pretty good. 
But yeah, I, I live with them on a daily basis and try to work through them. But luckily at the moment, they don't necessarily affect me on a daily basis. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And at the time, did it feel like a big change had happened and a big burden or weight had been lifted? Or did it feel quite insignificant and normalised? Well, it was with my mum, so I, th I think it was quite normalised, her being a, a mental health professional. I think I was probably a, a bit too normalised to mental health growing up with two mental health professionals. But yeah, that was my person. And it made me feel really good to be able to open up to, to my mum. And then after that, obviously, opening up to friends was really important too. And what triggers do you have that affect your mental health? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I would say my number one trigger is probably failure. That's kind of my number one trigger for my mental health going worse because that causes my anxiety to go up and then and then obviously affect my OCD and BDD. So that would say that that's my number one trigger, which I'm working on. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Danny, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I've tried exercise. Exercise is kind of the key thing I do. I, I like going out for a walk my one day I want one a day walk to the A. But yeah, meeting friends and going out for a walk is kind of the key thing I like doing. One thing I've tried, I've tried doing yoga and kind of the meditation thing, but I, I feel like I don't have the patience for it. I feel like I sit there and I'm just like, oh, this is taking too long. I need to go. So yeah, maybe I need to get a bit better at that. Toxic masculinity is something we try and break down a lot on this pod, Danny, and hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and masculinity itself won't be derided and be very, very positive in all aspects of life, whether it's in the media or outside. What does toxic masculinity mean to you and what examples of it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners? I think toxic masculinity means to me preventing a man from speaking up about their emotions. That's what I would say. I think toxic masculinity I've probably experienced was on the rugby pitch and in the, in the rugby changing room where I felt unable to speak about my emotions and my mental health for worry of being kind of ostracized from the group for doing so. So I think that would be the two things for me. We also talk a lot, Danny, about positive masculinity. And again, hopefully in a few more years, masculinity will just be positive masculinity. How would you define positive masculinity and what qualities should a man have to exude to be described as positively masculine? Is it, for example, self-confidence? Is it empathy? Is it self-awareness? What can you tell me here? I think what I would see positive masculinity as is being able to open up about your emotions, I think would be a really good example of positive masculinity. And I think that the second part of the question would be respect, just respecting people. That's the key idea, regardless of who they are or what emotions they have or whatever, just respect would be my best example of positive masculinity. Why do you think historically men have struggled to express how they're feeling about their mental health or feelings in general or not felt comfortable doing it? Has society taught us that perhaps it's not okay for us to show vulnerability or have we as men done it to ourselves, do you think? I think society's probably played a big role in the depiction of what the ideal man should be like of not kind of speaking up. I feel like we're moving away from that negative masculinity kind of approach and starting to move towards more of a positive side of things. But I think society and then self-induced from that point, I think. But I think we're moving forward. I really do. And just finally, Danny, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? I think creating an environment, specifically in the more difficult environments like rugby, 
clubs and things like that, creating an environment in which people can speak about their mental health and making sure that they know it's okay, but also by more men speaking up. So anyone listening to the podcast who's a man who's experienced mental health problems, speak up because it has a domino effect. Because as soon as you speak up, someone else will feel able to do so. So I think we can make some real progress through that. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Danny. He is an absolute legend and he's doing so much great work in the mental health sphere. So big love to him for letting me check in with him and for coming back to do the second attempt at this record. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Danny and Male Voice ED and find out more about his journey in the show notes. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in to this episode of the pod. And as always, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it. Or if you're feeling generous, drop us a rating, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Help us with the algorithms and also support our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Please do support us if you can. Every penny really does help. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. <laughs>